Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is now targeting the disciples in Damascus for some reason. Damascus was a pretty big city. There was a lot of Jews there, and there were several synagogues. And he refers to the followers of Jesus or the following of Jesus as the way. Now, the apostles are still in Jerusalem, and the persecution is still ramping up. So the zealous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, is now on a rampage, and his zeal has completely overridden both reason and the instruction of his teacher Gamaliel, who warned the council, saying, hey, leave these men alone, because if it's not from God, it's going to fade away. But if it is of God, you won't win, and you'll find yourself fighting against God. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. So this journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, about 140 miles, take about a week on foot. Now in between Jerusalem and Damascus was the region of Galilee. And you can just imagine as Saul is walking this long journey that he comes into that region of Galilee, just looking around going, oh, he probably had a weird feeling about hunting down the disciples of the Galilean teacher. But nonetheless, he continued. As he got to Damascus, a light shone from heaven all around him. If you've ever been spotlighted at night, you lose all visual ability. You can't see anything. Then you know how overwhelming it is. Can you imagine that happening in broad daylight and this proud, confident, zealous Pharisee? Now he's in the spotlight. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light may not have forced Paul to the ground. It may just be that Paul instinctively dropped himself down in a position of submission before such an overwhelming light. So he's on the ground. Jesus says, Saul, Saul. And, you know, God, for some reason, speaks in this manner. We see in Genesis twenty-two eleven. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. First Samuel three ten. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. So it's just a manner in which he speaks. He mentions their name twice. Then he says, why are you persecuting me? Me, not my disciples, rather me personally. And this is a good lesson when we are walking with Christ as children of God and we undergo persecution of some sort that actually what's happening, they're persecuting Jesus personally. And I think back in the medieval church, where the persecution of anyone who bucked the system was swift, it was brutal, and very much unbiblical. These people were dying for no reason other than they made the church mad. People were being burned at the stake because they possessed a copy of a Bible, things like that. And this is supposed to be done in the name of Jesus? No, that's the name of the devil. And the devil was inspiring Saul, just like he inspires anyone who seeks to destroy any work of God. But when those people seek to destroy the church, they're actually fighting against God, just like Gamaliel warned. And we who are as disciples, if we get some heat, you know, a lot of times we'll get all bent out of shape about it and feel like, man, you know, why am I going through this? Well, Jesus says, look, they persecuted me. 
They're going to persecute you. But it's important to understand who's got our back. Jesus has our back. And those people who did the persecuting have to answer to him as he asks them the same question. And I can't imagine all those religious leaders back in the days of the medieval church who held high positions standing at the throne of God, being unrepentant and having to look at Jesus in the face and say, I did the most horrible things to your people. And Jesus says, you did it to me. That's going to be a bad day for a lot of people. Jesus has our back. Verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul and many others like him, they get caught up in their own self-righteousness, and they're clueless about Jesus. And he's clueless about who's speaking to him here. I mean, the light's shining. He's on the ground. Why are you persecuting me? The voice is calling out to him. And that voice identifies himself as the dead ring leader that Saul is seeking to destroy. Uh-oh, this is the one. Now I'm face to face with the one that all these people declare is the risen Son of God, the Messiah. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. So Jesus doesn't engage with a warm conversation with Saul. Rather, he tells him to get up and get moving. And we can oftentimes feel the correction of the Lord is somewhat harsh and think that he doesn't love us because our feelings get hurt when he corrects us. I can totally relate to that. You're falling under correction and you're just like, come on, man, you know, and you just feel like you want someone to come up and give you a hug and say, don't worry, it's okay. And it's not okay. What Saul was doing was not okay. It was wrong. It was evil. It was ungodly. And Jesus doesn't have to have a warm and fuzzy conversation and give Saul all these little kudos for the cool things he's done. He needs to tell him exactly what he needs to do, get up and get moving. So we need to remember that Jesus is not bound to our feelings. You know, there's work to do for the kingdom that's important in matters where we may need swift instruction. He'll give it to us. He doesn't just pamper us. Rather, he says it like it is. And he's good. He blesses us. There's no doubt. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They heard the voice of God. You know, I wonder if any of these guys were present at the baptism of Jesus when John the Baptist was out baptizing, where there the father said, this is my son who I am well pleased. I wonder if any of them may have been there because they had to have an entourage of security. You don't just go down as one person into Damascus and start carting away a bunch of people. You have to have a security detail. I'm curious if any of them were at the baptism of John. If so, they heard the voice of God twice. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So Jesus is preparing Saul for ministry, and part of that, like us, is breaking us. Breaking the natural man or the natural woman, preparing us for the spiritual man or the spiritual woman. I think back on my life and different times when God called me into different things. A couple of times there was a major breaking of me that needed to happen. And God was gracious, but I was broke. And through circumstances in my life, I just fell down on my face. I am hopeless. God, can you do something? God's like, ah, now I can do something with you. Get up and get moving. Okay. And then something opened up. It was pretty cool. Verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And he may not have been hungry. He may have been so freaked out and I'm blind. Here I am, this great Pharisee, and God just totally rebukes me and I feel like a worm. And now I can't even see. And we got to remember when God knocks us flat on our back, we tend to think. We tend to lose our appetite at times as well. He also could have declared a fast since this was definitely a time where he was connecting with God. 
and it would be in his best interest. Fasting is a a great thing to do if you want to connect with God. Verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, obviously, it's another Judas. It's a common name back then. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, Ananias knows who Saul is. They are on full alert because they know this guy's coming. And Ananias probably had more than one thought of being dragged off into Jerusalem, into prison, and all of his stuff being confiscated by this man. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias, not only does he have knowledge of the purpose of Saul's visit, he knows that he's got authority from the chief priests. And when Ananias discovered this, he must have been concerned. So again, Ananias, he knows. He knows the mission of Saul. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Whoa! Say what? And that's exactly what Saul would end up doing. Verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus is saying, Ananias, look, I've got this. Saul's going to become my servant, and he's going to suffer for my name, which he definitely did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Saul, now going by the name Paul, Saul means exalted one, Paul means little, basically. Saul uses the name Paul pretty much throughout the entire book of Acts and his letters. And he says in verse 11, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And I'm talking like a madman. He's not bragging. He's, he's using this argument to basically stop the mouths of people that need to be stopped. So he says, I'm talking like a madman. This is not out of my pride. This is just saying it like it is. For with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. So the Jews would administer thirty-nine lashes for punishment. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, Paul's like, look, guys, I have suffered, all right? This is what it means for me to do ministry. And he didn't complain about it, but he was faithful to his calling. And his calling was not only to spread the word, it was to suffer. Because through the Apostle Paul, we learn so much about suffering and how suffering produces things in our lives that are good. So Paul suffered, suffered a lot. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that must have been hard for Ananias to say, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think is going through Saul's mind? He's sitting here blind. He was on the road to take all of these disciples of Jesus back to Jerusalem, bound them with no mercy. 
And now all of a sudden, here he is in a strange home, can't see, sitting there, and one of these disciples comes in, puts his hands on him, and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. How did you know the Lord Jesus appeared to me on the road? The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came in sent me so that you may regain your sight, cool, number one, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So compare Ananias to Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah got an assignment from God, and he took off in the other direction. Ananias got an assignment from God, but he was obedient, and we don't see anything where he rebelled. He went and did what God asked him. Hey, Saul, you're going to see again, and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to need your sight, and you're going to need the Holy Spirit to perform the task that the Lord is assigning you to do. And you know, without being filled with the Holy Spirit, ministry is doomed. There's nothing good going to happen for eternity in a ministry where God's not a part of it. We have to have God's Spirit to lead us through that narrow gate and down that difficult way if we want to please God and see His work accomplished in our lives. Verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So now Saul can see again, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, which was completely new to him. He undoubtedly knew about the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's in the Scriptures, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit was another story. And then he does what we are all called to do. He gets baptized. He professes that faith. Verse 19, And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Talk about awkward. Saul's hanging out with those he determined to destroy. You see what Jesus does to people? Jesus reconciles. He reconciles enemies. And we were an enemy of God before we came to Christ. In Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, it doesn't say we have the peace of God, which we do. We have God's peace in us, but we have peace with God. We are no longer enemies. I did not realize that before I was a follower of Jesus, I was actually an enemy of God. And I didn't think of myself as an enemy of God. It wasn't that I hated God. I didn't, just didn't know anything about God. But I didn't realize that I was actually doing the will of the devil in my life. And I look back on, I'm like, yep, that's obvious. The things that I did were totally in opposition to God. But now there's peace with God. The war is over. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he's the son of God. All these synagogues that were informed that Saul was coming, and he's going to hunt down any disciples of Jesus that may be in their synagogues. They knew it. And this had to have the synagogue leaders on edge. After all, they're just doing their jobs, and now this overzealous Pharisee wants to come and terrorize their place of worship. So now all of a sudden he comes in, and he's like, yeah, um, Jesus is the Son of God. We have heard that he's the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And now they're blown away. They're shocked. Verse 21, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? So they all knew. The word was out. And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Once Saul's eyes were opened, all that schooling, all that mentoring, or Gamaliel and the other Pharisees and leaders, it began to make sense. The scriptures were now blossoming in Saul's mind. And from the Old Testament, we now understand 
that Jesus was the one declared by Moses to be raised up who they would listen to. It now makes sense. And this is one of the sad realities in the church. We have so many people that have their minds filled with the scriptures, but yet they still have scales on their eyes because they're blind. They know about Jesus. They declare Jesus in many cases, but that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that surrendering where he breaks us and we completely give our lives to him, and now we are new creations in Christ, that seems to be foreign to a lot of people until their eyes are opened. You know, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the same idea that there's something blocking that information, the real information, the real data from entering in. And it's interesting that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes when Ananias prayed for him. I'm not sure what they were or how they developed, but one thing is clear, that Paul's eyes could now see in a way they never could. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Hey, everyone, look, this is Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. I now know the truth. He lives. Okay, you can trust me. I know him. Let's all rejoice and call upon his name. Let's bring in Messiah's kingdom, right? Let's go kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So now Saul getting a taste of his own medicine. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So now he escapes the city. He's getting out of Dodge. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul returns to Jerusalem with the persecution still rolling. And when they hear he received Christ, they didn't believe him. They're probably like, yeah, whatever. He didn't find any believers up there. He's coming back here to infiltrate. He's going undercover. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So now, once again, we see Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the Levite, who sold his property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. We need people like Barnabas in the church, those who are not afraid to take risks. Barnabas was a guy that said, you know what? Look, I'm looking beyond your fear, man. We're going to do something here. And Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit, very likely, he knew the Lord, says, look, this is from God. And so he goes, he meets Saul and brings him back to the apostles. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now Saul is back in Jerusalem preaching Jesus. I wonder how the high priest felt. Verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. First stop, the Hellenists. Okay, they want to kill me. On to the next. Verse 30, then the brothers learned this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, Saul, look, you're attracting attention. There's a hit on you. Let's get you back to your hometown, Tarsus, for a while. You'll be safe there. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Once Saul's mission of death was reversed and he was no longer a threat, the church had a time of peace where all were fearing God and enjoying the comforter, as Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit. Some translations say helper, others say comforter. And I think we often forget that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. You know, we think about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We think about the power of the Holy Spirit. We think about the leading of the Holy Spirit. But what about the comfort? What about those times when you're all messed up and you just need to sit quietly and 
and God begins to minister to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you just feel at ease and just say, you know, thank you, Lord. That's cool. Verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Elida. Verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So Peter's on this road trip visiting the believers in different towns, and he comes across this man. He declares Aeneas healed and commands him to rise, which he did. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So the residents saw the miracle, and they believed. Verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Verse 38, since Leto was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So this woman was loved by the people. She had a heart of serving and was known for her kindness, and she died, and they heard Peter was near, and so they went and they got him. Verse 39, so Peter rose up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And this had to be a cool experience, but I wonder what Tabitha thought. She's in the presence of God, and then she's forced to return to this miserable planet. I wonder if she's a little irritated. What are you doing, Peter? I don't know. Maybe not. Verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Again, the miracle testifies to the reality of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, more people come to faith. Verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Peter's on assignment from the Holy Spirit. He's visiting all these places, but God is totally in control. And he sends him to this place because something crazy is about to happen. And it's totally set up by the Lord. We'll see that in the next chapter. Thank you.